Our second panelist is Jomo K.S. Jomo is a heterodox development economist. There might be many other ways to describe his competency, but this is the label that he has chosen for himself, uh, or the label under which he occupies currently the position of assistant. Assistant under secretary, I think, for, for development economics in the Department of uh, Economic and Social Affairs of the United Nations. He brings to the United Nations a profound knowledge and understanding of the causes and consequences of the Asian crisis and their impact in the countries of North and Southeast Asia with which he is intimately familiar. He is also an honorary, um, an honorary, um, not quite sure what, with respect to the group of 24. Honorary convener uh, of the group of 24, which as you know, is an intergovernmental organization of developing countries concerned with international negotiations on economic and financial um, matters. He is a member of the Stiglitz Commission, appointed by the president of the um, 63rd General Assembly uh, to advise on the reform of the international monetary and financial system. He has uh, written many books, edited also many books. Uh, I, some of the titles are in your bios. Uh, the one I would recommend to you uh, is Globalization versus Development, a heterodox approach to industrialization in Southeast Asia. Um, and not least among his achievements is his initiative in the foundation of the Ideas Network. Uh, it is a nonprofit association of independent-minded uh, development economists, it is a, a wonderful resource and an excellent site and I highly uh, recommend it. Jomo received his graduate education uh, in uh, the United States, the universities, I think, of Yale and Harvard. Thank you very much, Kerry. This pre presentation I'm going to make uh, follows quite nicely from what Professor Friedman has just presented. I will particularly look at some of the consequences of the crisis for developing countries and also look at some questions of uh, the opportunities for, for reform and change. Um, I've just come from Beijing and uh, in Beijing the term for crisis uh, is, a com is a combined term. On the left side of the character is the word for opportunity on the right side. Uh, sorry, the left side is danger and the right side is opportunity. And I think this is really uh, summarizes. Unfortunately, I, I don't. My calligraphy is very poor, and I could not put this on over here. But um, in summary, I, I think it is very important to make a few points at the outset, just to give you a sense of what I'm going to try to argue. It is very important to recognize that to some that it is quite. Uh, and incorrect to suggest that the crisis, this crisis is a crisis which was not foretold. Uh, a number of important institutions and many individuals have been warning about the build-up, not only of the global imbalances, but also of the increasing fragility of the financial system. Um, the United Nations system, UNCTAD, 
as well as the Bank of International Settlements under the leadership of William White had played a very important role in this regard. Mm -hmm. And a number of important academics had also been warning for quite some time. Um, much of the focus, of course, has been on the question of unsustainable global imbalances, a question which um, uh, Professor Ocampo will also be addressing since in his leadership role at the United Nations, he was one who, who really uh, emphasized this point very, very importantly. But the other point, of course, is the absence of a financial system. One of our old professors, Professor Robert Triffin, used to say that you had a non-system. Uh, and this, at the, after the end of Bretton Woods in 1971, uh, basically there was no more any, there was no more international financial architecture to speak of. Uh, so when President Clinton called for a new international financial architecture, he was referring to that which existed before 1971. And between 71 and 1998, when he made that call, uh, there basically had been a non-system, and it was correctly presided over by the interim committee of the IMF. Now, it's also important to recognize that part, this, was, this was made possible partly by the, the growing influence of an ideology which favored deregulation, which, saw the, which considered self-regulation quite adequate, and which recommended uh, uh, and which saw the existing regulations as more than adequate, uh, and in fact uh, sought to dismantle some of it as we, as we know. Uh, and particularly for developing countries, one of the most problematic areas was the whole question of capital account liberalization. One of the major proponents of financial liberalization, Ron McKinnon, a, a Canadian, had actually uh, warned, he was so upset that his own advocacy of financial liberalization had led to capital account liberalization that he uh, authored a book called The Order of Economic Liberalization in 89, uh, which basically uh, warned, uh, emphasized the importance of sequencing and suggested that capital account liberalization should be the last thing you did. But nonetheless, despite the mandate of the IMF, uh, Article 6 particularly not providing for capital account liberalization, uh, uh, some staff actually went around advocating capital account liberalization in much of the world. Now, by, the 90, by this decade, by early this decade, uh, the IMF's uh, own research department uh, recognized that, that what they call financial globalization was problematic. Not only did it not contribute to growth, but it also exacerbated problems of volatility and instability. This was found by, uh, by work uh, under the leadership of Ken Rogoff, uh, who was then the chief economist, and subsequently affirmed uh, in the work undertaken under the leadership of Raghuram Rajan. Nonetheless, the work continued. I mean, the, the, at the operational level, uh, capital account liberalization continued to be promoted and financial globalization was seen as desirable. Now, for reasons which Professor Friedman is, uh, sorry, uh, Professor Levitt has correctly uh, emphasized, we find that developing countries have really been the innocent victims in this whole situation, and we find that this has been exacerbated by the response. Uh, we find that many of the responses have been really quite inadequate, and countries uh, have, have turned to the IMF for emergency funding, uh, and the IMF has in turn uh, imposed fiscal constraints um, uh, on, on the developing countries, fiscal constraints which are actually uh, at variance with uh, the practice of the countries which have undertaken the stimulus measures which Professor Friedman has, uh, has spoken of. Uh, the other area, of course, is the whole question of international cooperation. We all know that the G7 has basically been seen as, in, as inadequate, and hence the need to, to give new significance to an entity which Paul Martin set up in, in the wake of the Asian crisis uh, called the G20. 
Uh, what we now have is actually an L21, uh, since there are 21 countries and the EU, which makes 22, uh, who, who, who have been participating in the three meetings which have been held so far, which are ostensibly G20 meetings. And then there has been an aborted, abortive effort by the President of the General Assembly, whom our chair referred to earlier, to try to uh, organize a UN response to the crisis. Um, and uh, the, the last, uh, in a sense, that the remaining part of that is the commission report under the leadership of Professor Stiglitz and where Mr. Professor Campo also made very important contributions. Now, um, the, the the ballooning of the imbalances is, is a fairly recent phenomenon as, as uh, this graph uh, basically uh, captures. Uh, and we also know that the net flow of funds has been in the direction of the developed countries, uh, with the United States in particular being the major recipient, uh, receiving about half of the total uh, flow of capital. Now, U.S. macrofinancial policies have been particularly uh, problematic for reasons which, which have already been uh, well described, and I need not, uh, over, uh, need not emphasize them too much. But I think the element of hubris uh, which contributed to, to, to much of what, what uh, was described very eloquently by Professor Friedman uh, is, is something which is not to be underestimated. The, the, kinds, the kind of irrational exuberance which uh, Alan Greenspan talked about but did very little about mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, is, is something to be, uh, to be recognized. And this has been the basis of, the, of subsequent work by people like uh, Robert Schiller at Yale. Now, um, the significance of this kind of fragility uh, has been very well anticipated by Hyman Minsky in his seminal work almost uh, half, a, half a century ago. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's to, to get a sense of, of the kind of, of fragility, uh, I wish I could have drawn a, 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 pyra a pyramid which, were, which would capture the sense of, of how of of the of 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 the house of cards, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, which uh, which cap which uh, the financial markets had basically uh, spawned. Now, um, one of the very important issues from the perspective of developing countries is the whole question of globalization. And we often think about globalization as essentially a trade phenomenon. But what we see here, captured by by this graph, uh, over the last three decades, the growth of cross-border finance has been far, far more significant as reflected by the blue line uh, compared to the red line which captures uh, trade globalization. And despite this increase in the availability of capital from abroad, uh, we see that actual gross fixed capital formation has actually declined over the last uh, four decades. Now, financial globalization has been problematic not only because the actual net flows of capital have been, as Robert Lucas would call it, uh, uphill. The capital has flowed uphill uh, from the capital uh, poor to the capital rich countries, uh, contrary to the ad uh, claims of the advocates of, of financial globalization. The cost of funds has also not declined, uh, uh, and, and when it has declined, it's mainly been for policy reasons rather than for any other reasons. And as I suggested earlier, that has been an increase of volatility and also lower growth as associated with this. There has been a very significant transfer of funds, uh, financial resources from, from developing countries to developed countries. Um, the total is captured by the, the dark blue line and the, the other lines refer to other regions uh, of the developing world. The short-term flows of capital have been especially problematic. They do not contribute, as I said earlier, to investment um, uh, or to, and therefore not to growth. And instead, they often contribute to asset price bubbles. 
um, and related uh, bubbles such as in construction. Uh, and we also find that sometimes when capital is available cheaply, it's contributed to consumption, consumption binges. And as uh, Justin Lin, the chief economist of the World Bank, has emphasized, there has been a, uh, this has also contributed to overinvestment, which raises a particular problem currently because uh, there has been, as a consequence, excess capacity and hence a very a great reluctance to invest. And as we know, there's always a, a lag between investments and, and uh, job uh, uh, recovery, and this is likely to slow down the uh, uh, recovery from this particular uh, crisis. All this, of course, also exacerbates problems of pro-cyclicality, which have already been referred to. Now, the financial impacts on developing countries are, have been quite uh, varied. Uh, we have seen the stock market collapses have been much more severe in the case of developing of emerging markets. There's also been a further reverse. There's been a reversal of capital flows insofar as there have been occasional capital flows to developing countries. FDI has also gone down. Spreads, as we have heard, has, have gone up, and much higher borrowing costs. Although this has certainly stabilised considerably uh, in recent months and recent weeks. Now, financial positions. Uh, of developing countries going to this crisis have become uh, been much stronger, partly for the, partly because of the experience of the Asian and Latin American crisis uh, of the last decade. But many of these reserves have have uh, since contracted. We also find that capital inflows have uh, declined, as I mentioned earlier, and the cost uh, cost of credit has has gone up uh, very severely in both U.S. as well as uh, European markets, and this basically shapes the cost of credit uh, for the rest of the world. Now, borrowing costs for developing countries, as a consequence, uh, remain very high. Um, the, ma the manner in which contagion has spread uh, is quite varied, and I don't have time to go and elaborate on that, but basically we see that uh, the three basic vectors, one within the financial sector itself, two within the real economy itself, and thirdly, interactions between the financial sector and the real economy. Um, and all this, of course, has contributed to a very important deflationary spiral, uh, which, which is the, the, the main challenge we all face in the world today. Now, one of the very important differences between the situation which we currently face and the situation in the late 1970s is the following. In the late 1970s, you had a situation of stagflation in the West, low growth, if not negative growth in some instances, and relatively high inflation in Western economies. But in much of the rest of the world, in Japan, in much of the rest of Asia, and in Latin America, you really had very high growth, although you also had high, uh, high inflation in much of these many of these instances. In this case, however, because of the intervening globalization which has taken place in the intervening three decades, we find that the fates of fates of the different regions of the world are much, much more intimately uh, tied up with each other, and we all pretty much have gone down together, uh, some more than others, but may, uh, and those which have got, not got, been so adversely affected uh, are, for, are for reasons partly because of the stimulus measures which some of them have undertaken, and also uh, a number of other factors, including larger in domestic markets. Now, one important factor, of course, was was one important early factor was the flight of capital after the subprime mortgage market 
uh, crisis began uh, from Wall Street uh, to uh, mercantile markets such as Chicago. And as a consequence, uh, this exacerbated the biofuel subsidies and, and, and pushed up the price of, of, uh, of, uh, of corn or maize and wheat, uh, which are traded uh, in, in North America, and in the case of Europe, uh, the price of, of vegetable oils. And, all, and although prices have come down since the, high, the highs about a year and a half ago, uh, they still remain much higher than they used to be uh, four years ago or three years ago. Now, uh, there is a consensus pretty much that the world trade has collapsed uh, by about a tenth uh, uh, during this year. Uh, the WTO and, and OECD make, have similar projections to those uh, which we have made at the United Nations. The exports from the South, from developing countries, have fallen far more than from uh, developed countries for various reasons. Uh, and we know that mineral prices, uh, which have gone up more in the recent period, as uh, Professor Ocampo has pointed out in one of his uh, policy notes, uh, have actually uh, uh, also come down uh, far more. Um, so to sum up the trade impacts, we've seen exports generally for developing countries decline, uh, terms of trade uh, declined, um, and trade surpluses and reserves have come down. The only silver lining to speak of is that lower, you have also lower energy and food prices uh, for a number of, of, of um, yeah. I'm running out of time, so let me go a little faster. Um, now, the, okay, I'll skip that. This is pretty obvious. Um, uh, this is... Uh, we have growth uh, declining um, and the collapse in, uh, of 2008 and 2009 can be contrasted uh, with, with, uh, with uh, other countries, uh, particularly in the high growth period of the 2004-2007. Um, over 100 countries are expected to have negative per capita income growth uh, this year. Um, in, uh, including over 60 developing countries, livelihoods are threatened in various different ways, and the social impacts are quite uh, varied. The ILO's early projections estimates at end of last uh, early this year were uh, over 200 million people who would fall into the ranks of the working poor, and over 50 million people who would be unemployed. Of, and uh, uh, there have been subsequently uh, more dire projections by the IMF until the most recent one, which is slightly more optimistic. Uh, we also find that uh, the U.S. intelligence community agrees that the greatest security risk to the world today uh, comes from the crisis. Now, for developing countries, particularly the poorest countries, uh, there is a notorious uh, effect of the unreliability of aid flows, which will exacerbate the situation. I want you to take a quick look at this bar chart. You get a sense of how uh, you can barely see the ODA to Africa and if you compare to the recovery efforts uh, uh, on the left. Um, um, and the net aid transfers uh, are something which are often grossly exaggerated because um, because of the whole problem of not including interest payments. So in, in the case of the DRC, for example, which received officially on paper $5.5 billion uh, of ODA in the year 2003, the actual aid transfers uh, for that same year were less than half a billion. Uh, remittances have also declined in this instance, unlike earlier instances, mainly because uh, in early in 
generally we find that immigrant workers respond to uh, decline, uh, worsening situations in their home countries, but now they are unable to do so because they are often the first to lose their jobs and are vulnerable in other, fashion, other reasons. Now, a delay in uh, undertaking a strong stimulus response uh, basically results in greater delays. And so this is already becoming apparent if you see the strength of the Chinese recovery and the strength of the Singapore recovery, and you contrast that with other countries which have not undertaken uh, stimulus measures, uh, for that matter, the United States as well. Um, now, we have made the case for much, more greater, much greater coordination, and I'm particularly interested in Professor Friedman's remarks about work he's undertaken with colleagues at the IMF on, uh, on uh, what, what uh, fiscal measures at a global level might be. Uh, our own uh, uh, modeling exercises suggest that with the same resources but differentially, differently allocated, we would have um, um, with, uh, with coordination, you would have a stronger uh, uh, response, as indicated by the red line, compared to the current situation indicated by the, by the, by the black line. And all groups would benefit, uh, developed countries as well as developing countries, as well as transition economies, and most of all, the least developed countries in the lower, uh, lower uh, right-hand um, box. Um, the recovery of Jobs recovery tends to lag output recovery. Uh, in the case in, in, in 1991, uh, this took, uh, output recovery took about nine months after the recession. Uh, in, the case, in 2001, that was the, the, the case. But as far as the jobs situation was concerned, uh, from two and a half years, it, took, uh, it moved to about four years in the case of 2001. So this is something one needs to be very concerned about. Um, there have been a number of multilateral responses to the crisis, uh, which I, I, I won't uh, uh, try to summarize uh, for you. Uh, but very importantly, we have an important shift from the G7 to the G20. Canada is going to be the host country for both uh, meetings, uh, for, uh, G7 and G G20, or more correctly, L21, as I suggested, uh, uh, next year. Uh, and it's important to, to uh, the host country actually plays a tremendous role, as uh, as uh, Dr. Bhattacharya will, will, will um, can can testify, uh, uh, and 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 is able to shape the agenda in very very important ways. And I would uh, strongly uh, many since many of you uh, from the Halifax Initiative come from uh, the civil society, you might well want to think very seriously about the implications and the potential uh, hosting uh, offers. Now the June. Um, uh, let me just move on. I think we are. Uh, we we might have been at the Bretton Woods moment. I'm not sure we are there uh, yet. Uh, we are there anymore, rather. Uh, and I think it's very important to recognise the significance of Bretton Woods. Uh, the Bretton Woods initiative was was really pushed by Roosevelt. Uh, and it included, as you all know, 44 countries, including 28 countries, which are now be considered developing countries. And it created the IMF, the, the World Bank, and uh, also it was meant to create the International Trade Organization, mm -hmm. which, which was subsequently vetoed by Congress. The emphasis was not just on monetary and financial stability. It also sought to create the conditions for sustainable growth and job creation as well as post-war reconstruction and post-colonial development, as captured by the name of the World Bank. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I think, is extremely important for us to recognize, that the, the ambition at Bretton Woods was to, was to create the conditions for renewed growth and, and trade and so on and so forth. 
And the, the, the focus so far in many of the discussions has been very narrowly on, on financial system reform at best. Uh, even that is singularly un unambitious in, in, in my view. And I think it's very important for us to try to broaden the thinking here as far as this is concerned uh, when, when, when we consider uh, what needs to be done, uh, particularly the opportunity Canada has in trying to shape the discussions at the forthcoming G7 and the G20 meeting. Thank you very much for your attention.